0: Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure, as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. Our adventure today will take us from a circumnavigation of the Southern Ocean to the islands of the Pacific Northwest where we'll be meeting up with Eric Loss to explore his world of sailing, solitude, and lifelong learning. Hey, Eric, how's it going?
1: Good morning, Jen, how's it going? (laughs) Pretty good.
0: Excellent, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, no worries. I've just been chasing dogs and baked beans around the house all morning, but I'm glad to put a pause on everything and get on the phone with you for this.
0: The perfect start to the day. So obviously, you just actually set the scene, which is perfect. But before we get stuck into my weird and wonderful questions, I'm wondering if you could just tell us where you are and what it's like there. Just get us situated in your world other than beans and dogs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I am just outside of the town of friday harbor on san juan island in washington state we are sort of about two hours north of seattle right on the canadian border and we you can only get here by boat either ferry or your own boat and today it is sort of gray and surprisingly warm it's about 50 fahrenheit and lightly drizzling so it's a lovely pacific northwest winter day
0: Perfect. So I'm going to start with some weird questions that really have nothing to do with anything, but should hopefully just, you know, set the tone for the rest of the interview.
1: All right. Well, I've got to say, I think my answer to all of your questions is going to be a tiny hippopotamus. So let's go. (laughs) Okay,
0: perfect. Cake or pie?
1: Pie, I think. Every now and then cake, but I'd say 90% of the time, definitely pie.
0: Excellent. Could you please say a word in Spanish? Hola. Wow, (laughs) it's beautiful to witness. (laughs) Okay, how about your favorite type of tea?
1: Right now, well, recently I've been really into bright puers. I'm drinking one right now. I can't remember the actual name of the town it's from, but I got it from Suns Organic Garden in New York. Lovely tea store that I got connected to from when my brother lived in New York, and it is quite nice. It's much, it's a dark, it's a black tea, but it's, it's almost, it's more savory in a lot of ways than like a normal, like black tea and less bitter.
0: Oh, interesting. It's,
1: it's very, I don't know, it's hard to describe. It's almost like earthy, but it's not like dirt earthy. I don't know. It's the good, the one. the kinds that I like have a very, it's a very distinct flavor that I'm sure people who are tea snobs could actually describe in lots of pretty words. And I can't do a terribly good job at it at all. But I think it's, it is a unique tea flavor that I really enjoy. And it's also kind of cool because the tea generally, you can steep it multiple times. So like I've I've been steeping the same leaves now for like three or four cups this morning. And it's still Mm. each each version, you know, gets changes a little bit every time you do it, but it still tastes pretty darn good, which is something you can't really do generally with like, you know, most black teas or green teas and things. Hmm. Pu'er tea has been like a weirdly like speculative thing. And like there's a big boom of it where like, it got very popular and people were speculating on it and you know, paying thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars a kilogram or a pound for it and hoarding it kind of like a tulip kind of craze in the last fifteen or years or so. And there's like a <laughs> whole weird world of people buying very, very expensive teas and like not drinking them, just storing them and hoarding them. And then there's a bunch of tea counterfeiters who are also making fake versions and there's a whole exciting world of like tea skullduggery associated with it. But this is just a <laughs> I think a a nice, like, you know, moderately priced, not outrageously ridiculous, but like very drinkable, nice tea, tea, what I've got right now.
0: Well, and I think this is perfect for setting the scene as to why I put lifelong learning as part of your title for this episode. Oh dear. (laughs) Because people are gonna realize as we start to talk that you know a lot of things about a lot of things. That's one of my favorite things about you. So how long can you hold your breath?
1: Right now, not very, probably like a minute and a half or something. I'm very out of shape not being in warm places where I can swim a lot anymore. But I have been like when we've been going to the pool here recently, been trying to do a little bit of, you know, breath holding swimming and stuff, but not free free diving or breath holding shape at the moment.
0: When you were at the peak of your free diving, what would you say your breath hold? Oh, when
1: I was like, you know, semi-professional and, you know, a world champion. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> not a, Never. Um, I've been probably like, I know I've had a breath holding contest in a bar in Beckway one time where we got over three minutes, something or other, but it's, you know, it's not anything particularly like magical. So, or special. It was just sort of a fun hobby.
0: And uh, Eric, I feel like this question is perfect for you. What is wind?
1: What is wind?
0: <laughs> what is wind?
1: <laughs> Moving air.
0: Excellent. And last but not least, how do you feel about tomatoes?
1: I love tomatoes. You know, there's a lot of really bad tomatoes out there, which are sort of not really worthy of the name and should probably be shunned. Um, (laughs) And I know that your fellow countrymen often are sort of soured on tomatoes. And it is rare to meet a Canadian who does truly like tomatoes, because they've so rarely been exposed to high quality tomatoes. But I think tomatoes are a wonderful fruit, and you should try and get your hands on the best tomatoes you can.
0: Them's fighting words. You might have problems with people in Ontario. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those t- I mean, there's a hothouse tomato that's grown in Ontario. Um, and it's it's called Campari tomatoes, actually, that are, like, okay. Is like, They've made it, like, this trademark brand name thing. And it's, there's a, oh, man, it's, like, one family who, like, trademarked this tomato. And it's a special breed. And they, like, you know, a lot of effort goes into producing them. And they're, like, they're decent for a hothouse tomato, I would say. They're not as nearly as good as you know, like a dirt grown heirloom, you know, tomato grown in the summer, but I will say that as a hothouse or like big scale commercial tomato that is produced with, you know, in basically in sterile growing media and very sort of weird genetics and overly engineered for high productivity, it's pretty good.
0: So I think we can safely say this is like a confession episode where we just found out that Eric is a tomato snob.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're, (laughs) I mean, now that we're living here on shore, I'm growing probably, I mean, not crazy, but you know, 25 tomato plants every year and keep rotating through varieties to try and find ones that do well here and make very, you know, good tomatoes in our climate.
0: Awesome. And I do definitely want to return to that nearer to the end of the episode as we explore into the lifelong learning piece. But for now, Eric, we are going to delve back in time and I would love to know... How did life all begin for you? Where were you? What was it like being you when you think about being a kid?
1: So I guess I grew up in Southern California from a very early age, I guess I got, well, depending on who you start, I got involved in boats and sailing. there's about three different origin stories that my parents like to tell at family gatherings when they've had you know a glass of wine and are like, oh, do you remember that time? And I'm like, yes, I've heard the story before, um, <laughs> but we'll see which, which one it is. Um, one of them involving like a motorboat at a family reunion on the Mississippi River, one of them involving like desperate jealousy against an older cousin when my grandpa took him out for a birthday sale or something. And I think there's probably another version of it too that is equally something his family, stood, that my family, <laughs> parents would love to tell you about, but I can't honestly remember very well. But I guess throughout sort of my childhood, I did all sorts of things and you know, I had to do swim team and played soccer and played T-ball and all the sort of standard, like growing up as in the suburbs in Southern California things playing the trumpet for six months in third grade to the <laughs> chagrin of everyone within a several mile radius. But I guess one of the sort of things that stuck over the whole time was sailing, you know, like I was terrible at t-ball and I hated soccer. And I think everyone, the whole world was better served when I stopped playing the trumpet. And, you know, swimming, my I was basically told that if I didn't, but I had to keep swimming until like I was the age of 30 or something or else my parents would disown me. So I sort of very reluctantly continued swimming, but it was under protest for much of my youth. Sailing was the one thing that I enjoyed and was always enthusiastic about going to do. Looking back on it, I fully appreciate the fact that, you know, it was an ongoing thing where my parents were like, well, you have to keep swimming until you're faster than your dad. And then they're like, well, you have to keep swimming until you're faster than your mom. And then I was in high school and faster than both of them. they're like, well, you have to keep swimming because if you don't, you have to take PE. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. I don't want to take PE.
0: Swimming it is.
1: (laughs) Swimming it is.
0: And then, so you continued to sail all through high school.
1: Yeah. And sort of, I'd always been sort of, you know, did community sailing and it sort of was a kid and it was, you know, I taught sailing actually when I was in high school, I sort of wanted to keep doing it. And there's a couple of kids at my school who started a sailing team as like a sport, which is a thing on the coast, actually quite a bit of the country. And I sort of got involved in that one. That was kind of fun because it was racing and I don't really love it, but it was really a cool sort of like socializing thing. And it also was like sort of cool to learn how to Sail better. The other thing that I was did at that time, I guess, which I guess would have started before high school now that I think about it, probably was getting involved with the Sea Scouts, um, with a group called Mariners, which is basically like it's like Boy Scouts, but it's co ed, so girls can be involved, which was nice. And it's with boats instead of doing whatever it is that Boy Scouts do, which I've never quite understood because I never got involved with it. I got I spent, you know, that became a very sort of defining part of my mostly my high school life we got to the point where like you know we had bigger sailboats and you know by the time i was graduating high school i was taking you know 35 foot sailboat with five or six other kids on it on a sailing trip weekend sailing trip to catalina with me sort of being in charge of planning and running the whole thing and the you know there's right. adults along but they were just there to watch it was a really well put together program of creating opportunities for high school kids to have real responsibility out in the real world with like real things and not just you know sitting around on our bums (laughs) doing whatever it is that high school kids do
0: when you think about you know high school we're talking about your sort of recreational activities when it came to sort of studying and thinking about what am i gonna i say this in inverted commas what am i gonna do when i grow up did you think about sailing as a career or were you thinking about other things
1: I to be honest, I wasn't thinking about anything as a career. I was a <laughs> terrible high school student. At least I mean I just maybe not the most terrible, but if you talk to my mother, I suspect she would say that I was a trial. I was had no concept or foresight or thought about future plans. I think most of my thoughts were focused on either the things I was, you know, doing at the time, current activities, or, you know, trying to complain about how unfair the world was, you know. I probably I mean, I can't really remember, but I would be unbelievably surprised if I spent more than like 10 minutes over the course of my entire high school career thinking about, you know, a career or a future or anything like that.
0: Basically, you were living in the moment.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. (laughs) You keep spinning these things positively.
0: I certainly try. (laughs) But you did go on to go to university. So what did you end up studying?
1: Um, computer science. And that was, to be honest, sort of a little bit of a continuation of that same living in the moment, as you called it, in that I went to university and, you know, I took a, a computer science course my freshman year and enjoyed it. And it was relatively easy and got a good grade and fun. I was like, I'll do this as a major because it's something that I'm enjoying doing right now. And sort of by the time I graduated, I was totally done with it and uninterested and like sort of burnt out on it, I guess, and totally (laughs) uninterested in computer science. But I think, you know, one of the things that came out of that is that I some, I sailed in college, you know, competitively racing there too. And some of the people I met through doing that, I ended up after college, which I graduated, I graduated in 2008. So like right in the middle of the lovely financial crisis, which if I would have made getting a job hard, even if I had been trying hard to find one. And I wasn't particularly but ended up after taking like a year after college to go sailing in Europe and bring a sailboat from Europe, basically back to the Caribbean with some friends I knew from college. And that was sort of a life I, eye-opening moment is I realized mm. that, you know, met people who were doing this kind of thing for a living and realized that you, you can go and like, there are people out there who are sailing and working on boats all the time, not just, you know, on the weekends or something. Right.
0: For sure. So actually taking that recreation and making a career out of it with, with that experience, is that what sort of spurred you on to, to look at that career?
1: I think at that stage of my life, I was sort of falling from coincidence to coincidence in a lot of mm. ways, you know, I went after I, at some point in there, I went and took a captain's license course in Florida. And while I was, the place, the school I was taking it had this little handwritten note on the wall that basically said, did you just finish your captain's license and looking for a job? Call us. <laughs> <Perfect>. um, <laughs> and yeah, you know, I called them and it turned out to be this company that did um, basically summer programs and then for high school kids in the Caribbean, taking them out sailing and then also had, two bigger school ships, they would then take college students on year round. So I was like, sure, that sounds like fun and went and started working for them and got hired to work on the school ships afterwards. So I sort of fell into it in that way, I guess, just from a chance encounter in the sort of dingy waiting room.
0: For sure, a beautiful moment if you reflect back on it, really. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I like your positive spin. So that was a company called Seamester. So I went and worked for them for a couple of years.
0: And importantly, met someone who is like really integral to your journey in yeah, life.
1: So, yeah, uh, so I met Shanley, who is now my wife. But yeah, so I think if I hadn't stumbled through that whole chain of whatever you want to call it, I would never have met Shanley and probably almost certainly would not have ended up where I am today. But I guess you can probably say that about almost every decision that any of us makes. So,
0: mm-hmm. And so th- with regards to the timing, I happen to know that you met Shanley pretty soon before you were planning this big expedition, what we're going to talk about today, uh, which was your solo circumnavigation of the Southern Ocean, which is like a thing you know if you if you look at the grand scheme of things that people can do (laughs) (laughs) what other way to say it you sort of say that you were like falling into things and things were kind of just rolling and you were going with it at what point within that did you say well i want to do this
1: I mean, you're right, it was all that same time period. You know, I met Shanley, she came on to semester as a student on one of the longer semester trips. And then she liked it so much that she then came back to sort of work for the company or volunteer for the company in the shipyard and then was going to sail across the Atlantic on one of the other boats um, that I happened to also be involved on. And sort of while she was there, you know, volunteering, in the shipyard we started sort of i guess involved with each other and because she was then going to be sailing across the atlantic the company had sort of a very strict like no relationships policy they were basically like hey you can't be dating this girl because you know you guys are about to go a, this transatlantic trip there was some sort of internal politicking going on where the the boat that we were going to be going across the atlantic on the first mate on that boat really had thought that he was going to be promoted to captain and then they just sort of parachuted me in on top of it. So he was very upset about that. And it got kind of ugly and messy. And I think in that whole kerfuffle, if you will, um, <laughs> I think that's where I sort of came up with this idea of going to sail around the world almost as sort of like a, you know, in some ways it is sort of one of the first distinctive decisions I guess I I see that I made that was not just sort of following coincidences. Mm-hmm. Um and i sort of decided to do that in a lot of ways as a sort of a reset button on what felt at the time like my life kind of falling apart
0: interesting and what i love and we're going to talk a little bit about this is that you did write a book about it and you had a blog <laughs> but the but the book is called Loss at Sea which i have always found really entertaining so L O S S
1: that's my last name
0: <laughs> but now that i talking to you about what led up to it it actually gives a lot of context if you were to look at that title i needed this time to just go away and do my thing for a while
1: it's i think it's an interesting lens to have on if you're like reading about any of that stuff that i wrote back then cuz I was like, at the time I was very sort of aware of it. And I think in that like writing I was doing, I was, I don't think I ever really like mentioned much in the way of details or addressed some of those issues beforehand, but sort of it was always present in my head.
0: Mm. Thank you for being vulnerable on here, you know, to say that yeah. stuff, right? Cause I think it's important for people to hear Look From the outside, looking in at your career, it's just some living the dream, right? It's just really important for people to realize it's not a straight line. And it does get brushed over. And that's something that I want to pick away at with this podcast to say like, it's okay for things to be a mess. Yeah, sometimes, you know, and, and you will figure it out. I will put links in the show notes if you do want to have a look at the blogspot. It is still live, svodyssey.blogspot.com. And you can actually get Eric's book on Amazon, a Kindle version called Loss at Sea, A Solo Circumnavigation. So definitely check that out. But one of the things that really struck me when I looked at your summary, it talked about, you know, going on this sailing trip, going alone for... It says nine months. The last line, you say, he faced external perils and physical challenges throughout his voyage, but the real voyage was within. And bum, bum, bum. yeah, boom, boom, And to me, this really talks about solitude. It's something that I've certainly been exploring in the last few years, and and I've grown to love it now. But there have definitely been times in my life where I actively did not seek it, right? I think it's also interesting to note that there's been a kind of collective experience happening with most people around the planet, exploring their own relationship with solitude over the last few years, what with lockdowns and such. But there's certainly a difference between voluntary and involuntary solitude and, you know, a need for that to be approached with sensitivity and respect for its impact on mental health. But I think both can hold plenty of opportunities for growth and lessons for us if we're open to it. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what it was like to go into this. You said you you sort of needed this reset button, but it's a pretty extreme reset button for most people. I mean, it's a voluntary type of solitude for many, many months and trusting yourself enough to be alone on the ocean. Oh,
1: man. Well, that's a prompt if I've ever heard one. It was a little bit of an interesting thing because a, a lot of the people in the world who go to do something similar, you know, sailing solo. I was trying to sail nonstop and didn't quite succeed there around the world. Do an awful lot of training and preparation, certainly if they're racing. And it I sort of rushed the whole thing. You know, I basically left the, you know, a job at Seamester in, I guess it probably was April or May of that year. And I bought a boat in June and then left to go sail around the world in November. And when I left, I'd basically, you know, I'd never been Sailing alone overnight before, um, you know, I've been doing awful lot of experience, but had no idea. Wow, hadn't ever really done any sort of actual solo ocean sailing before, and so I guess I, I felt it was a little bit of a, you know, I think rushed, you know, in some ways rushed into that just because of the time frame that sort of led up to it and led the decisions to do it all. But at the same time, it you know, it all worked just fine. I'm back again. I survived. <laughs> You know, people often had have said to me. You know, it's been ten years now, so it's it's hard to you know remember. But often have said, you know, weren't you lonely, or wasn't you know? I could, don't think I could ever even you know I couldn't imagine not being able to see land, or you know, there's a, a I think a common thread of people who have either you know the the thought of being that far away from other people, even you know, regardless of the like being alone or not, but this, you know, not just like being alone in another room, but being alone and like. 2,000 miles from the nearest person Mm -hmm. um, is really a scary thought for a lot of people that I've talked to. I don't know, I mean, I I found that the first week or 10 days leaving people and leaving shore was very difficult, you know? And I actually ended up stopping about two months into the trip in Valparaiso, Chile, to do some repairs on the boat. And Shanley flew down with a suitcase full of smuggled boat parts to do stuff and (laughs) spent about two and a half weeks there Sort of reintegrated into society and people, and then left again to continue. And that mm-hmm. second departure was—I had thought the first time leaving Los Angeles was so hard, and the second departure was even harder. It was really tough, um, you know. And I got—I I think to the point where you know, it was the first time I'd ever been seasick in my life was leaving Chile, um, and I think a lot of that may be due to like just the mental stress of like that whole thing. But both times, you know, I found that you know, relatively quickly in the scheme of things, you know, within, you know, 10 days, two weeks or whatever, I was able to sort of get over it and get back and get centered on what else was going on. And then, you know, for the rest of that, you know, for the, you know, the way to Chile for the, you know, that last, you know, two months or you know, month and a half, whatever it was. And then for the after leaving Chile for the remaining, what is it, 165 days or something, the rest of the way around the world back to LA. The loneliness and that sort of stuff wasn't crippling or debilitating. You know, it was. It was a. Awa- I was aware of the fact that there was nobody else there. You know, and I did have some communications. I could do e- slow email over satellite phone and like make phone satellite phone calls. You know, like I'd talk to people. You know, I'd talk to Shanley or my mom like probably once a week or so. But I guess I was sort of amazed at how well I adapted to it, and that was one of the things that's interesting about it. And it was also with that trip. I guess I came out of it was that you're very, I mean, entirely self sufficient. And so if something went wrong, you know, like there wasn't anybody else to turn to for help. And so right. it really, I guess, sort of drove home the fact that, you know, I could accomplish things. And, you know, I was, I was in a, when I started, I guess I was in a place in my life where I was feeling a little bit beaten down and like I was, had sort of screwed up, you know, fairly significantly with what had been a pretty cool job and this and that. And like, came out of it in some ways, I think it was a lot more self-confidence because sort of I basically proved to myself that I was able to, you know, go be alone for eight months and deal with everything that happened along the way.
0: Absolutely. And if you reflect back on it, what are your favorite memories?
1: Favorite or like just any, I mean, there's a any. couple of memories that are, I mean, I've got some memories that aren't favorite, but they're, they stand out. Perfect. For sure.
0: I want those ones. Um,
1: <laughs> Um, I mean, I've got some other ones that they stand out for other reasons too, but I think one of the memories that really still stands out for me, not as a, I mean, maybe you could call it a favorite memory, but when I left Chile and was heading south for Cape Horn, sort of the first Southern ocean weather system that I encountered, which in retrospect was not particularly strong or intense, but I had basically, you know, I'd never sailed the boat in a storm before, really you like is seared into my memory of sort of, you know, about probably 18 hours total, but the wind increasing and the rain and like trying to figure out how to sail this boat through this storm and not really knowing what I was doing waves breaking across the cockpit like ripping a solar panel off and you know, trying to sort of do all this damage control and the whole time, just being terrified and like I basically wouldn't go couldn't go Physically, I felt like I wasn't able to go out on deck of the boat unless, you know, I had like when the solar panel got ripped off, I was like, I had to force myself out of the boat to go deal with it, Mm -hmm. and then went straight back down below climbed back into my sleeping bag. And I ended up once sort of the boat was, I'd finally sort of gotten myself to a point where I thought it was sorted out, I basically went and lay in my sleeping bag for 15 hours and I was like, I can't go on deck, I can't look, I can't see, I just wanna turn off. And, you know, it was. It was a, everything was wet and the, the wave knocked the boat down because I didn't know what I was doing. So like there was mm-hmm. stuff everywhere all over the inside of the boat. And then sort of, you know, waking up the next morning and it was calmish and the boat was just sort of sitting there and everything was dripping and pissing condensation and going up on deck and like being like, oh, you know, I, I survived, the boat survived. That actually wasn't so bad.
0: It adds a whole nother dynamic to the phrase weathering the storm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I guess that's that's one memory that's really stuck in my head from the trip. Another image, I guess, is actually not that much later. It would have been on Valentine's Day, actually. So not that much after this little storm incident was rounding Cape Horn, where Mm -hmm. it basically had just sailed through a probably similar intensity of storm system as the one that I'd sort of just talked about, which has terrified me. And been totally fine and survived and like starting to figure out how to sail the boat and waking up to still windy and white caps and like it's just sort of this beautiful post-frontal day in the southern ocean with big clouds of sort of rain clouds of squalls coming like booming past and snowing and sleeting and then disappearing and it being bright sunny again and the ocean is just wind whipped but not scary just sort of like big and smooth and beautiful and Mm -hmm. all along the northern horizon that day after I saw it past Cape Horn at dawn and then just the whole day as the you know these little snow squalls are blowing over the top of me looking and up north and seeing the like mountain ranges of tierra del fuego poking up over the horizon just wow. the snow-capped mountains and they like you know they would disappear in a cloud and then reappear again and then that night they all just recede over the horizon and the next morning woke up and it was you know nothing but ocean again and then i didn't see land again for i don't know how many days until i got to i guess it probably would have been tasmania
0: what a rare viewpoint for seeing such a famous landscape yeah a burning question would be as you started to experience more storms and other sort of challenges, did you find that it was getting easier or was it always still the same level of challenge, but your recovery time was better?
1: That's a good question. I mean, it got easier as things developed. You know, I figured out how to sail the boat in various conditions. Especially later in the trip, as I was getting across the Indian Ocean and then into the South Pacific, mostly across the Indian, to be honest, it was getting later in the season, I was getting more tired and worn down, and the weather was getting worse, the storms that early on would have been petrifying were just sort of normal everyday occurrences for that kind of weather. And in hindsight, the weather that that very first storm hit me with was not very special or intense systems got stronger. You know, I got, I think, knocked down twice more across the Indian and put the mast underwater. So like it got the recovery time certainly got quicker. There was still every now and then there were moments where, you know, like, I can't go outside right now, where you felt sort of that petrifying fear. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it instead of it being, you know, for 15 hours, it would be for a minute or two minutes and be like, all right, I've got to go deal with this shit, then you just go and function.
0: And so fast forward a little bit, and we're, (laughs) we're back on land. I think when, when people go on these big adventures and they have these expeditions and these experiences, there's kind of this expectation from people on land who are following along that when you get back, it's like this great big celebration. And I would love to know what was that like coming back to land and the process of that last day?
1: Thinking on it, the last, it was actually, it was a little bit slow because I was sailing and I wanted to finish the trip sailing as much of it as I could. And coming back into Southern California, the wind all dies at night. So I spent my last night basically just drifting around (laughs) off Catalina Island, off like the west side of Catalina Island, got, you know, a decent amount of sleep because there was no boats out there. And then the, you know, breeze filled in and I sailed into shore, had a fun run in with my engine, basically, the, the key to start the engine was horribly corroded by saltwater. So it basically, you know, turned the key, nothing happened. Sailed into Long Beach Harbor and was the main ship channel back towards my marina. And there was a spot like that I remembered, you know, sort of where the wind dies, you're heading back into the very backest part of LA Harbor. And it happened to be right by this big battleship. that's like a museum ship tied to the side of the thing at that point, And I rolled up my jib and I would wearing my big sun hat and horribly hairy sailing my boat back up there. And I, there's a <laughs> big tanker ship coming out the channel. And I'm trying to like hug the battleship side so that I don't get in the way of this big ship leaving and I decided it's time to start the engine. So I'm opened up this hatch in the cockpit and I'm in there with a screwdriver trying to short circuit the starter motor so that the engine will start because the key's broken. So I'm in there like head down, very hairy with this hat on like shooting sparks. All of a sudden I hear somebody screaming at me and I turn around and up on the deck of the battleship, there's like three very pissed off security guards feeling like they're about to pull guns on me, screaming at me, what are you doing? Get away from the ship and this and that. And, like you know like I turned around and I was like I yelled back and I was like I'm trying to start the engine so I don't get run over by that ship and like the engine started and they were like oh okay get out of the way and they like it was fine but it was sort of an interest fun welcome back to California (laughs) Um,
0: a rude awakening
1: yeah so you know I got back to the dock and my family came I tried to keep it pretty low-key and like my family came down and Shanley came down and I think I had donuts and orange juice. I think were the two things I was craving the most from like not having gotten to eat them at all while we were out at while I was out at sea. You know, it's not like it was a great dramatic you know return. I, I think I you know tied the boat up to the dock and then got off and went home. And I don't think I you know I, I slept for quite a bit and I don't think I went back to the boat for like two weeks or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just you know done. But it was a little bit hard getting reconnected. I'm sure you know. I'm sure if you talk to my family or family, they would probably have more interesting versions of this story. You know, I don't know. I mean, one one thing that people tell me and I assume it's true is that I'm a lot chattier now than I was before I did this trip. You know, I think as a kid and bef- my memory is that I was not a particularly talkative person. And I'm not now, but I talk more, I think. And the other thing I think that helped a lot with this was sort of just the easing back into civilization is about a month after I got back, Shanley and I actually like had another sailing job so a friend of a friend had a boat in tahiti that he needed brought back to canada so the two of us flew out to tahiti got this guy's boat and then sailed it to hawaii and then back up to canada and that was a really sort of nice way in some ways for us to like get back reintroduced in person again you know Mm -hmm. and spend some time together i found it really helpful because it was getting back out in the water and sailing was very familiar because i'd just been doing that but it was you know, with another person. So I think that really helped with making the reintegration and into the world less dramatic. Yeah, imagine
0: coming back and having to go right back to a nine to five or something like that, right? Where? Yeah, no, I mean,
1: I think that would have been, you know, I don't know, who knows what that would have been, but I think it'd be really hard.
0: And I just wanted to share this with you because I found a really hilarious blog post from 2012 uh, entitled, We Hate Eric Loss. And uh, it was a couple that after meeting you and following your blog during your solo circumnavigation, that they felt compelled to write this post. And it basically said, Eric Loss is an incredible 26-year-old man sailing a 36-foot boat around the world alone. And what did he take from us? Our ability and natural right to feel sorry for ourselves. As soon as things get uncomfortable (laughs) on our passages, big swell, wind is light, or we're becalmed. Things about which we would very much like to whine and take pleasure in a little self pity. We think of Eric and sees too large to describe, or being becalmed for days at a time alone. Curses, Eric! And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fun to kind of look at this and say, you know, you never know who you're inspiring with your trip, and you know, when you were out on the boat and you're doing this trip and you're obviously doing your blog spot. Did you think then that you were going to turn it into a book or were you just kind of like a blog spot and then I'll be done?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, the blog thing was really more just because I didn't want to have to, you know, I didn't want to be sending an email or a phone call or something every day to family and friends on shore. Sort of was doing that blog mostly just to let everybody else on shore know that I was alive. And then I sort of started enjoying you know, writing it in a fashion that was more than just, hey, I'm alive. But it really <laughs> just started as a way of avoiding other forms of communication.
0: What I'd love to look at now is you know, what came next, because you basically went from this round the world trip by yourself. Obviously, you had that time with Shanley um, doing the boat delivery, and then you guys went on to work for Pangea Explorations. And so going from solitude on the ocean to basically facilitating hundreds of people every year to go out and be on the ocean. And and as much as Pan Explorer is obviously about exploration, education, and conservation, it's also a giant social experiment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anytime you put a bunch of people on a boat, it kind of is a giant social experiment. It's like a reality TV show without cameras, because you take 12 people and you put them in a small space for three weeks, and then you make them, half of them seasick and all of them wet and see what happens.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more for those who don't know about Pangea Explorations.
1: While I was sailing around the world, Shanley actually went and sailed a trip on with this boat that we ended up working on. She sailed from Hawaii to Mar- Majuro in the Marshall Islands, then on to Japan to study um, the tsunami debris. And so, you know, and actually, when she got to Japan, the captain of the boat at the time actually tried to hire her to sail with- back to Hawaii, and she had some family commitments and couldn't go. Um, but that fall, sort of after we got done, we sailed this boat up to Canada, and we're just sort of kicking around, to be honest, at loose ends, sent an email to the pers- woman who was running Pangaea at the time and said, hey, do you need any, you know, relief crew? And it turned out that the captain that Shanley knew had been running the boat that very same day had sent an email saying, hey, I'm going to be leaving in, I think, for, you know, around Christmas time, I've got, you know, some health issues, and I want to go home. You know, we got an email back that said, can you be in the Galapagos, you know, before New Year's? So we got I flew out to the Galapagos and jumped on this 72-foot sailboat and sailed it to Panama, and little knowing that we'd be spending the next—I don't know how many—ten years, eleven years of our lives involved with sailing it. Pangaea runs this boat called Sea Dragon that basically got started to go take you know people out into the oceans and do sort of citizen science research projects, and it did. A lot of the work, early work with a group called Five Gyres, who sort of documented the fact that there are microplastics in all of the world's oceans and sort of really helped bring awareness to that. And then over the years has sort of ended up becoming more about just taking normal people out sailing and less about doing sort of focused science and research trips, although those are fun too. So we ran that boat as sort of co-captains for 10 years-ish. And then when COVID hit, sort of moved ashore and are now living on this island.
0: Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about the process of becoming landlubbers for sure. But before we move on from Pan Explore, what was it like living your life constantly on the oceans and always with that adventure, even though you're, you're coming into marinas and you're taking breaks and you're provisioning and getting new people on board, but those are very short periods of time in between being out at sea. What was that like as a lifestyle?
1: I mean, it, it was a lifestyle. I don't think you have this misconception, but but just that you used the word adventure. I think adventure is often get misused. I feel like, especially in a professional context like this, but adventure, I feel like is what happens when things don't go the way they should Mm. um, and don't go to plan. And like 99% of the time when we were sailing this boat, like most of our energy was spent in trying to avoid adventure. If, at least in you know my circle of feeling comfortable with things, you know I think you know somebody who came out on the boat you know as a guest who you know has never been out sailing on the ocean before or never been to this before, I think it would be a great adventure. But our whole goal was to make sure that it was a safe and controlled experience. Where at the end of the day, it's not an adventure for us because if it's an if an adventure is happening, that means that. Something has gone wrong, and we are probably having to, you know, making our lives a lot more difficult. Um, and that I think is one of the things, actually, in some ways, that I learned from doing that after doing the sort of solo circumnavigation, where that was in a lot, in a lot of ways, more in sort of the spirit of adventure, kind of, you know, because it's just me. There's nobody else involved. Nobody else to rely on. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things, especially in the early years that I had to sort of really work on was keeping things under control at all times and foreseen, which, you know, you can't ever foresee everything, but you sure as hell want to try it to because, you know, the last thing you need is, you know, somebody getting hurt or something, you know, something bad happening because... Um, an adventure
0: you know we can all have our different definitions of it but basically you guys were facilitating people to have these adventures
1: yeah that's and uh, and i guess we they were having adventures we were having another day at the office would be the if if that was what was happening that meant that everything was going well right which is Um, it's,
0: it's just great to look at that as like a totally different perspective
1: yeah i mean i think it's probably fairly common around people who are professionals in sort of this type of world whether it's you know backcountry guides or whatever it's you know any kind of thing like this it's it is the way that probably you know anybody who's doing a good job of it looks at it people forget about that i think sometimes because you know that's not what the sort of the story is that you're going out on when you do one of these things and it's but even like when you're going out you know on your own kind of adventure i think it's a good mindset in a lot of ways to have particularly if you like are doing some thought about what the levels of risk are and sort of where your risk tolerances are and that like You know, it's wonderful to go and have a cool experience and an adventure, but at the same time, like trying to make sure that you have the, you know, risk management put in place and the many sort of options as possible before you go and do this, that it doesn't spiral out of control and become, you know, a YouTube video channel about disaster.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's interesting, you know, now knowing more about your, the lead up to your circumnav versus this totally different approaches right
1: and i think i mean it's partially i think probably a a thing i learned to some you know that turned out surprisingly well you know sailing around the world i think one of the things i probably have sort of internalized out of that whole thing is probably this same sort of concept we're talking about now on the flip side though, like I do have to say, you know, when I, I, every now and then I run into somebody who's like trying to think about a big adventure. And the biggest thing I think, here, I'm gonna go back on what I was just talking about, but at the end of the day, you can do too much preparation and get bogged down in that world for sure as well. And I think there is a right. balance to be struck, especially when it's, you know, you're not involving other people's livelihoods and well-being, and, you know, it's just you or it's just a couple of people who are all sort of on the same page. And that, you know, if you are mentally prepared, you are, or, you know, think you are mentally resilient enough, you know, you can deal with an awful lot of stuff as long as you can, and you can just go and do with it. You know, I mean, that's the flip side of it going sailing around the world without knowing what I was doing is that I learned that you can just go and do it just as long as you're willing and able to function in that kind of environment and figure it out.
0: Well, and I think it comes back to just being flexible and
1: flexibility in
0: life. And I mean, we experience these things in our daily life, too. It doesn't have to be on some great grand adventure. The flexibility is where the adventure is. If we look at you were saying as things go wrong is the adventure. Well, it's just life unfolding as it's going to. And we can choose to put ourselves in different experiences or we can choose not to. And that's that's fine either way, as long as we're open and willing to learn as we go along. And I wanted to speak a little bit to just another misconception of when people look at the sailing lifestyle and they look at, you know, living on a boat. And I know obviously you and Shanley have your own boat that you have been sailing around. And I'd like to talk about that as well, especially in terms of cold weather sailing. Because I think a lot of people, when they think of sailing, they think of the Caribbean and warm weather and um, how lovely and luxurious and relaxing. Coconuts (laughs) filled with rum. But in between, (laughs) you know, I'd love to talk about how much work goes into maintaining a boat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A lot. (laughs) Which
0: I know you Um, have a lot of experience of over the years. Yeah,
1: sort of like anything, but boats are a tremendous amount of work, keeping them going and functioning the way you want just to, here's another pick on another like pet topic of mine but like i think there's there's an awful lot of people in the at least in the last 10 years at least who have sort of gone off on sailing adventures particularly like with a lot of money and maybe a lot more expensive fancy stuff than they necessarily could handle. And a lot of people's, you know, sailing adventures <laughs> end up turning into like, you know, this is a joke, but like people, it's real. Going sailing is like fixing your boat in exotic locations. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it's like the number of people that you've run into every time, everywhere you go sailing, you know, whether you're sailing in, you know, Antigua or Grenada or Trinidad or Greenland, everywhere you go, you meet people who are fixing their boat in exotic locations. You know, for me, me sailing around the world, I mean, that was again, you know, in the boat and exotic locations in the middle of the ocean but like the less stuff you have to fix the more you can experience the things that you that you thought you were going to experience rather than experiencing like the inside of the machine shops of Porta, for example. Right, for sure. Which is, you know, it's a, its own whole level of, you know, kind of a cool experience. And I got to say, like, with running Sea Dragon, we went a lot of cool places and a lot of things. But on that boat, because that I interacted with most of the places we went was through the fixing of things. You know, we'd be in a harbor somewhere and tie up, and the guests would go off to see the sights and go hiking and this and that. Shanley and I would be like riding with a crazy Jackie Sea driver through the industrial backwaters of some port, trying to find, get a propane tank filled or trying to find this part or that part. And it's its own kind of fun, you know, in some ways, if you can enjoy that kind of stuff, it is kind of fun, but it's just a very different view of the places you're traveling to than maybe people are expecting.
0: Right, absolutely. And then working and running a boat versus having your own boat that you're sailing on as well
1: we bought a 40 foot sailboat while we were still living and working on Sea Dragon. And we would sort of take chunks of time off every year where either you know the big boat would either be laid up without trips or we'd have another captain running it for a couple months, and then we'd go sail our boat around somewhere. So we sailed from France across to the Caribbean, and then up to Maine one year, or over the course of, you know, a couple little chunks. And we ended up actually getting married in Maine. And then we sailed from Maine up to Greenland and Iceland and Ireland, and then left the boat in England for a while and then came back and then sailed from England back down the coast and then back across the Caribbean again, and then left it in Trinidad and then COVID hit, you know, never saw our boat again for a couple of years until everything opened up again.
0: If you think about sort of your experiences in the Caribbean with warm weather sailing versus the cold weather of being in the Arctic and in the Southern Ocean.
1: It's different, you know, like it's, I think I'd get bored of any, of one for too long, you know, when I worked in the Caribbean on Seamester, uh, which is where I was mostly sailing, after two and a half years of basically going to the same islands and ports a couple three or four times a year back up and down, I got to the point where when we got into a port, and we had, you know, some, you know, big hike or something planned where I'd be like, I'll just gonna, I'm just gonna hang out on the boat and read a book today, you know, everybody else go, I'll just watch the boat. But, you know, then when we came back to the Caribbean most recently and visiting again, you know, our most recent trip was probably gonna be the last time we're there in a, for at least a couple of years, you know, cause we brought our boat back out now to the West Coast, got to go revisit a bunch of those places and really enjoyed sort of like the nostalgic tour of going to, you know, hike up that waterfall or go hike up that mountain or this and that just cause it had been a while. So, you know, with the high latitude and the cold weather stuff, one of the things that really struck me about at least when we were in Greenland is that with only two of us on the boat, we actually really didn't get off the boat very much because so many of the places we were, were fairly unsheltered and unprotected. And there were, we were all sort of worried about an iceberg, you know, coming in and hitting the boat while I was at anchor and making us drag or this and that. And we spent a summer up a slip in Greenland, but you know, the 10 days we were in Iceland tied to a dock, we spent most of that time off seeing Iceland. Whereas, you know, in a month in Greenland, we spent less time than that. Certainly like, you know, out and away from the boat. So that was, something i didn't really expect but was definitely sort of sobering i guess and disappointing but true
0: Mm -hmm. well and i think disappointment can be a very common emotion when when you go off to do things like i was thinking about your solo circumnav and having to stop in chile was not the plan however that's life (laughs) that's life And so we were talking a little bit about, you know, the pandemic hitting and that changed everybody's world. For you guys, you went from basically living on water to living on land.
1: But we are living on an island. Right. We thought that was kind of like a nice compromise because you can't get here without being on a boat. So it's sort of like being on a really big boat that just is anchored all the time and has (laughs) trees. And then your dinghy is in fact a 350 foot ferry to go to, you know, the big town and bright lights of seeing, you know, Target and Costco.
0: Perspective is everything. Yeah. (laughs) What else about those islands and living there attracted you?
1: We were thinking about moving ashore when COVID hit and basically accelerated all of our plans. We'd sort of reached a point where we were ready for a change. I guess up here in particular... I mean, part of the appeal, to be honest, was the island thing that I was just sort of joking about is that it felt like a natural transition between sort of the islandness of a boat and like, you know, living on the mainland. But also it's just a, it's a really beautiful part of the world. And it felt like it was someplace where there, we were still had a lot of water around. So it could still be getting out on the water and sailing and boating. And, you know, there's still plenty of potential for working on boats. But also I had sort of developed in the last couple of years in the boat an untested enthusiasm for like growing things like tomatoes, like we talked about earlier and wanted to maybe get a chance to like do some gardening and things. So we felt like it was a nice thing to be able to do that. And now we're like, you know, living, quote unquote, living the other dream with the house and the white house with the not a picket fence, steel fence, but you know, and the 35 (laughs) apple trees and you know, the whole thing. Right,
0: right, for sure. And you did end up working on a farm. So you got some experience that way.
1: We spent a couple weeks up here a year or two before we moved up here on a different island just to see if we liked the vibe of the area and really enjoyed it. And that sort of helped cement our goal of sort of being up in this part of the world.
0: And then you're still operating the shore side of Pangaea Explorations. And then you also have started a new job, which is back on the water.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I just started working for the University of Washington. They've got a little field satellite campus here with a fishing boat they use for taking out students to collect samples to teach marine biology with. So I just started But I've started doing that, so that's really nice to be able to get back out on the water again a little bit in a professional capacity.
0: And put all those maintenance skills to good to good use. Yeah. Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In the middle of doing that right now, actually. So
0: (laughs) And one of the things that I, I didn't talk about earlier, but I wanted to ask you about, cause I know that you're a voracious reader and did that happen because of the solo circumnavigation? Were you a big reader before that? Cause I know that no, books I was, kept you yeah, company, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was a big reader beforehand too, mm. for sure. Certainly reading was a crucial part of surviving that trip and like, or mentally surviving that trip, at least, you know, I think I, I spent an awful lot of time reading. I took two Kindles with stuffed with as many books as I could think to stuff on them. And then probably another, I don't know, I'm sure somewhere I've actually wrote down how many, but somewhere around, I don't know, hundred ish, like actual physical books with me and just read a lot. When I read through everything I had with me, went back and Read some of them a second time because it had been, I hadn't really been paying that much attention the first time.
0: Through the process of reading, is that how you started to think about getting off the water and wanting to have your own garden with fruits and vegetables and things like that?
1: The apple enthusiasm didn't really start until we were actually here on shore. That's definitely how the thought of getting vegetables and gardening came from is I read Story's Guide to Raising Chickens, which I think I read halfway across the Pacific Ocean on Sea Dragon at one point, and then I delved into the whole world of farm literature, which to some extent is just as sometimes aspirational and filled with false promises as sailing literature is. But sort of a you know being in the middle of the ocean and reading about what what type of goat is the best kind of goat for your environment like it was kind of a fun diversion and I sort of went down that whole rabbit hole.
0: Well, and it's amazing to think that you went from there to being an award-winning.
1: Well, it's not much of an award, but yeah, one of one of my hard apple ciders won first prize at the county fair
0: last summer. Right, I would say that's a very sort of <laughs> successful horizontal move in terms of career. Yeah.
1: I mean. <laughs> there weren't very many competitors. So, but you know.
0: Well, and I think that it's important to be a lifelong learner, be interested in what you're interested in and being willing to follow that. And you've obviously been doing that with this move onto the island and having your own garden and working on a farm. I think it's very inspirational to be able to do something like that. And then you're returning to the water too. So you kind of got a nice balance of things now.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wonder like, you know, how much simpler would my life have been if I'd just taken that degree in computer science and been working for the same software company for the last 10 years and, you know, living in a little apartment somewhere and, you know, taking all the tons of extra money I would be making over what I have ever made (laughs) to like go and, you know, travel by airplane or something on weekends or whatever. But I, I mean, I'm glad I'm not doing that.
0: Instead, you're, you know, living the dream on the island.
1: Yeah, I mean, the one the only time anybody's ever actually said I was living the dream was one time when we were visiting Cleveland on Sea Dragon and we had tied Sea Dragon up down at the waterfront and went to a baseball game and we were walking home and a cop car pulled up next to us and rolled down the window and one of the police officers leaned out the window and said, hey, are you guys the ones from that boat down by the waterfront? And like, like, oh man, what are we getting into now? And I was like, yes. And the guy's like, yeah, you're living the dream. And then they like beeped their sirens and raced off. (laughs) There we go. The Cleveland police department says that I am living the dream.
0: Take that away and tuck it in your back pocket for those days where you don't feel that's true. Well, this has been awesome, Eric. Thank you so much. And b- before we wrap things up, I'd love to talk a little bit about the cause that you chose for our recreation donation this month. So you've chosen the Mariners Sea Scouts. We, You actually mentioned it earlier in the interview and you're talking about how you have got into sailing and some of those really cool experiences. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about what they do and what our listeners will be supporting when they choose to donate.
1: Yeah. So Sea Scouts in general, I think like I mentioned it earlier is sort of a national thing it's like it's a part of boy scouts but it's a it's co-ed which i think is really good um and it also boat based rather than cabin in the woods
0: based i guess
1: you can see i'm not very
0: i think there's value to both for sure not,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it, it is but it, it is that's yeah that's one of the different is actually like part of like the explorer things so there's like police scouts and airplane scouts and fire scouts mm-hmm. and it's sort of in that arm of the bsa Mariners is a troop of the Sea Scouts, which I was in when I was in high school. It's based in Dana Point, California. And I think it is the biggest sea Scout group in the country um, and has been for at least fifteen or twenty years. It's a very sort of targeted kind of concept. you know, I mean, it it only you know it's only affecting the people who are in it, but I think it has a huge impact on the kids who do join this group. I mean, I know it certainly had a huge impact on my, childhood and youth and really influential in other people, kids' lives for like teaching leadership and resiliency through this sort of independence, really through this medium of the sea, which I really love. So I picked that because I guess it's sort of like a giving back to something that really had a strong influence in my early life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Full circle. And just so that people also know, Pangaea Exploration and Sea Dragon are sailing. So expeditions are open for people to sign up. Where is the boat right now?
1: So as we speak, the boat is about a day and a half to two days sail east of Oahu on its way to Hawaii from Ensenada. And then they're going to be sailing from there down to Christmas Island, Tahiti, exploring the Central Pacific for the spring
0: amazing so anybody who's looking for a chance to get out on the ocean definitely check out pan
1: <laughs> whenever i say it to somebody on the phone like giving somebody my email address they almost always hear pan and then they don't send they send me emails and i never get them and i'm going to call them and explain it all
0: cool um, guys so, pan- so leave the r off the end <laughs> exactly <laughs> Perfect. And if you guys are interested, definitely check out Eric's book, Loss at Sea, and his blog from his circumnavigation, which is svodyssey.blogspot.com. And Eric, I gave you a heads up about this because I'm going to be asking everybody, but we've got one final question. Uh Uh-oh. What do you think is the meaning and or purpose of life, the universe, and everything?
1: Uh, I'll give you the quick and simple, easy answer, and I'll say 42.
0: I figured you would. (laughs) I saw that coming a mile off. Well, thank you so much, Eric. This has been awesome. It's been really wonderful to to learn more about your experiences and how things have unfolded for you over the years. So thanks so much for your time. You're welcome, Jen. This month's recreation donation is in support of Mariners Sea Scouts. As you now know from exploring with Eric and I in this episode, This charity played a formative role in his life during his high school years. Mariners is a co-ed boating program for young people aged 12 to 18, designed to guide and support participants as they gain experience and confidence on the water. The holistic approach to their programming, from classroom instruction to island trips, competitive and free sailing to maintenance classes, give young people a chance to experience teamwork as well as independence responsibility, and leadership through their time together on the ocean. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways that you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you, and if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you or someone you know has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.